you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. We're studying the book of Luke these days. We've been in this for four weeks now, and we're all the way up to verse 5. Which means that by the year 2076, we should be done with this book. That's all right. What's the hurry? Uh, and we're just taking it verse by verse. Um, I encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. I'll be reading out of the, the New International Version, uh, to, or today's New International Version, TNIV. And I'm entitling this uh, message for reasons that will become clear a little bit later on. But you promised. But you promised. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Zechariah belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But, and that but is all important here, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both well advanced in years, beyond the age where you could naturally conceive of a child. Let's pray for this message. Can I get some people who will uh, be my intercessors throughout this uh, sermon. Just cover, cover the sermon. Thank you very much. Father, the only reason we get together is to be a kingdom people, to grow as kingdom people, to worship as kingdom people, to be equipped as kingdom people. Uh, Lord, let your kingdom come right here, right now, on earth as it is in heaven. Build your kingdom in our minds. Build your kingdom in our hearts. And let this word, Lord God, be a, a word that brings healing to those who need it, is challenging to those who need it, but whatever else happens, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, it's not with eloquence, God, it's by the power of your Spirit, uh, Lord, unite us as a body to be the people who are radically sold out to this radical, radical alternative kingdom in this world, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. A little uh, historical background will help understand this passage. Herod is the king of Judea when this is happening which tells us that uh, we know Herod reigned from uh, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Uh, most scholars argue that this, this episode is taking place around 7 B.C. Jesus was probably born around 7 B.C. Herod reigned just a little bit after Jesus was born. He was a vicious king, as you know from the biblical record, and we know from other sources as well. Our calendars are off. Jesus was not born on zero. He was born around 7 or 6 B.C. And the guy who figured this out in the 5th century miscalculated, and that's why all of our calendars are off. But we can't do anything about that now. Um, Zechariah was a righteous man. He was a priest serving in the temple. He was a descendant of Aaron. And he was part of the division that was under the headship of Abijah. Now, all the priests who served in the temple were descendants of Aaron. That's a system that God set up in the Old Testament. And at this point in history, there's 24 divisions of priests, and they would take turns serving in the temple, uh, offering up worship and prayer in the morning and the evenings, and, and people would gather for this, for this uh, uh, daily time of prayer and worship. That was their job. They would draw straws as to who would be the one to say the prayers and, and offer the sacrifices because it was considered a great honor. 
Uh, so there's 24 divisions. One of those divisions was under Abijah, and that's the division that Zechariah belonged to. Luke goes out of his way to say that both uh, he and his wife were descendants of Aaron. They were part of this pure priestly line. Uh, that they were blameless and righteous before God in terms of keeping the law. It doesn't mean they were absolutely sinless, but the term just refers to ritualistic purity, which is to say they really kept the law tight. And the reason why Luke emphasizes that in verses 5 and 6 is because of verse 7, that but, but verse 7. And what we find in verse 7 is that they didn't have any children and they were too old to have children. Now the reason why that is significant is that it was the assumption of, of ancient Jewish culture that if you walked with God, one of the signs of blessing that will come to you is that you'll have plenty of children. And if you're not having children, that is one piece of evidence, it was generally regarded, that, uh, that there's something off in your life, that God's blessing isn't on you. And so Luke is saying that they were righteous. You can't go there with this crowd. They were descendants of Aaron. They, they, Zechariah was a priest. He was holy. He was righteous. And yet, surprisingly enough, he didn't have any children. And this righteous lineage was going to come to an end because now they were too old to have children. There would have been a personal uh, piece of anxiety for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Why don't we have kids? And there also would have been a social stigma attached to that. How is it that the, this couple that looks so righteous don't have children? Maybe they're not as righteous as everyone thinks. Now this idea that if you're righteous you'll have plenty of children, it wasn't just made up, it actually is rooted in the Old Testament. You find a number of verses where there seems to be that kind of promise. The, the, the main one is in Deuteronomy 28, when God is stipulating the terms of the covenant that he's making with Israel. And he spells out what are the blessings and what are the cursings. The blessings if you follow me, the cursing if you don't follow me. And we'll see here that, that part of that uh, was, was wrapped up in whether or not you have children. So it says this in Deuteronomy 28, and I'm just stringing together several verses here. Moses says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, then, among other things, the fruit of your womb will be blessed. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your land. Uh, fertility will be everywhere, he's saying. Just, you walk with me and, man, you're going to be fertile. Everything you touch is going to be fertile. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, then, among other things, the fruit of your womb will be cursed. Now here we have what seems to be a promise of God, and Zechariah is holy and blameless, his wife is holy and blameless, and yet it looks as if they're under the curse rather than the blessing. And that raises this question, and this is what Luke is, is, is forcing on us here in these three verses. What do you do when it seems like God is contradicting himself? What do you do when it seems like the promises of God are not coming true? Or more generally, we could just say, what do you do when you're disappointed with God? When things that you expected to happen don't happen, how do you handle that? It is, I have to confess to you, a, a real personal issue for me. Uh, last year, I, I took a hit on this one. Um, I, just by the kind of way I was raised, I guess, I, I, for a lot of reasons, I don't get my expectations up uh, very easily. I would much rather be surprised than disappointed. And so I tend to 
just sort of expect the worst, and I'm impressed if that doesn't happen. But I don't like to expect the best and then have it turn out to, to be less than that. I hate being disappointed. So I don't go there easily, but I let myself go there last year. What happened was this. I and a number of other people from Woodland Hills Church were taking a short missions trip over to Cambodia where we're going to minister to, with Wynne Tranberg, who's a, a doctor from our congregation who's just committed her life to working with the Vietnamese people in Cambodia on the Mekong River, uh, some of the poorest people on the planet. And she just supplies medical help to them and, and things of that sort. We were over there helping her with her missions trip, and it was going really well. Um, but about, uh, it was a Saturday night, we'd been there about a week and we started having this discussion one evening and, and uh, just talking about how, what some of the challenges that Wynn faces in terms of spreading the gospel in this cultural situation. They're steeped in, in a kind of civil uh, religion of, of Buddhism and Hinduism with a lot of magic. And, and the people live hand to mouth on a daily basis, if not on an hourly basis. They're, they're not really impressed with ideas. They're not impressed with theology. They're not impressed with apologetics. What they're interested in, and this is true of a lot of third world countries, is this question. What can your God do for me that my, that my present God can't do? We'll follow the God that helps us survive. The God who's got the most power. And so we were talking about what an uh, incredible thing it would be if we just saw the power of God demonstrated in this uh, shack Vietnamese village. One or two people who were lame, who, who, who uh, in Jesus' name were able to walk. Or, or just one or two people who were blind, who in Jesus' name were able to see. Something like that could turn a whole village around. You see, and, and, and so we began to talk about this, the need to have faith for this and begin to pray for this. And yes, it's necessary and good and wonderful to demonstrate the love of Christ by sacrificing your life and bringing medicine to these people and helping them in every way, shape, and form. And that does have an impact. But how beautiful it would be if we saw the miracle-working power of God demonstrated in their midst. And so we were like really, you know, keyed up for this. Next morning, I was preaching in a church in Cambodia. Um, and at the end of the service, I was preaching through a translator since my Vietnamese is a little bit rusty. And uh, uh, at the end of the service, there's this little girl. Her name was Mai, this beautiful, angelic little girl that I and everyone else on the team had fallen in love with. And she was in a wheelchair. And she gave me a note that I took to, to Wynne Tranberg, and, and she translated it for me. And the note basically said this, you know, Pastor Boyd, thank you so much for coming and, and being with us and, and, and helping Dr. Wynne do all the good that she's done. Will you take me home with you? And then she said, because I know that American doctors can make my legs work. And I want to I wanna be able to run and play with the other kids. I've never been able to do that. Could you take me home with you? And also, my wheelchair is broken, so I have to have someone always push me wherever I go. And I, I, could you get me a new wheelchair? And the wheelchair thing, man, we just all took out our wallets and just gave, gave the doctor you know, or the, the, the pastor there this money saying, I'm find her a new wheelchair. And, but the, other one, the, the first one was a little tougher. And I went to Wynn Tramberg and I said, Wynn, is there anything that a doctor in the United States could, could do for my... And when said, medically speaking, uh, it's hopeless. Uh, if we could have got her in the first year of her life, we could have at least slowed down the rate of attrition and, and maybe she would have had you know, some uh, ability to walk, but it's a degenerative disease and 
Uh, right now, uh, it, it's, it's far too gone. There's nothing anyone on this planet could do. And it was, we decided that since Mai had been really living in, in this hope that she's someday going to make it to America and then she'll be able to walk, and we thought, we, we thought it best that we tell her the truth, and we did right there. And we just said, we're sorry, but there's nothing that a doctor in America can do. And there is nothing more painful on the planet than watching hope seep out of a little girl's eyes. That was a brutal, brutal moment as she just sunk. And they started to cry. And then Wynne said, the only thing we can do is what we talked about last night, and that is pray to Dr. Jesus. And so we, 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 we said to, to my We'll, we'll pray for you that Jesus will heal your legs. Her legs were like total rubber. In fact, kids would sometimes take, take those legs. They're not real politically correct over there. And, and they would have fun, you know, kind of uh, whipping each other with her legs and even whipping her. But, but she would like join in the fun. Uh, but though she was embarrassed it when we saw kids doing that. And so we said, okay, we'll pray that Jesus will heal your, your legs. And I don't think I have ever prayed harder in my life. I love this little kid. And we just prayed and prayed, and we rebuked anything in the spiritual realm that maybe is, is intensifying this or causing this. And, and we, we, we just called on the power of God, and we spoke healing into those legs. We did what Jesus did and what Jesus told us to do. And we stood on the authority of the cross. By your stripes we are healed. And we prayed for God to glorify himself, Lord, not just for my sake, but for the sake of this village. Wow, what a, how this could turn this around. And we, just, well, we, got, we, we, we scraped up all the faith we could have, and we just pressed in and pressed in and pressed in and pressed in. And after I don't know how long it was, the, the prayers kind of trickled off, and Mai was still in that wheelchair, and there was no sign of any progress whatsoever. And there's a part of me that just, there's a part of me that just broke when, when that happened. Um, there's a part of me, to be honest with you, that, that, that really said this, look, fine, fine, you know what, I don't want to pray for healing anymore. I, 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 I'm done. The part of me wanted to say done. I can live in a world where crippled people never walk, you know, I, I can deal with that. But, but when, you, when, when you get your hopes up, and there seems to be so much in the Bible that gets your hopes up, and you pray like this, and all the circumstances are right, and you, you intercede on behalf of this little kid, and it doesn't happen, something inside of you can die. That's what I mean by being disappointed with God. Come on, God! You know, I, it's, it, it's this little kid. And I've got a theology that can make sense out of this where I don't blame God. I wrote the book on it. You know, I've got the very, I know the variables. I know that it's not just a matter of God up there, you know, saying, no, I don't want to. It's not like that. But when you're looking in this little girl's despairing eyes, the theology just waxes kind of thin. And, and you know, it, Jesus was healing all these people. We're just asking for one here. You see, disappointed with God. And I think a lot of us, in different ways, whether we admit it or not, get disappointed. It's like, come on, there's supposed to be this miracle-working power and this other stuff. These promises are supposed to come true. Sometimes we, we, people get themselves in tremendously dark places because of uh, what they see is God not coming through on his promises. There's a lady I spoke with uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, where she was just in absolute despair for a lot of reasons. But what happened with her is that uh, she had been taught that on the basis of, of Acts 16, 
that if you, if you walk with God, you're assured that your kids will be saved. Acts 16 says this, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. And she took that as this unconditional promise. Okay, boom, I can claim my kids are saved or will be saved if I walk with God. Now her son was a vibrant uh, Christian kid till about the age of 14, started hanging out with the wrong crowd, started getting into drugs, started getting into trouble, started breaking the law. At the age of 17, riding around with some friends of his higher than a kite, doing up to no good, they got in a car crash and he was killed. And this lady's despair was not just for the loss of her son, but it was, it was God let her down. And I, I told her, you know, you don't know the state of your son. We, we never know those kind of things. God's mercy outruns all of our appearances and all of that. But still she's in a situation that, that, that it, it, she, she believed God was telling her and that she had this promise that if, if she just honors God, walks with God, has faith, is saved, then her son is going to be living and dying in a saved condition. And so her question was, Where's God? What do you do when God's promises don't come true? Or maybe it means, she thought, maybe I'm not really saved, which is not a good conclusion to come to. I want us to think through this thing in a real biblical way. I'm, I'm going to outline four principles that are, are very important for us to, 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 to think. It doesn't give us all the answers to all the questions, but it will help us deal with these questions. Four principles. Principle number one. It's really important that you make sure that you're understanding, that, that you're not misinterpreting a biblical promise. You need to read every passage of the Bible in an informed way, in its original context. And, and uh, make sure that you're not uh, applying to yourself a promise that maybe wasn't really meant for you. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, you have this promise, as I read earlier, that if you walk with God, uh, your, your womb will be fertile. The, he'll bless the fruit of your womb. You will not be barren. But you need to understand that that provision was given to Israel. He was speaking specifically to the Israelites, and it was part of the Israelite covenant. What God was doing with the Israelites was really training humanity in a very baby-like way how to walk with him. It's like we give kids immediate rewards for immediate behaviors and immediate punishments for immediate behaviors because you've got to teach them cause and effect. Well, that's kind of what God is doing with ancient Israel. He's saying, here's the deal. If you walk with me, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll curse you. And, and so it's very important to walk with me. On top of that, God is wanting to grow Israel because his goal was to uh, raise them up as a mighty priest, uh, a nation of priests who would minister to the world and bring the world the truth of uh, the one true God. There's nothing in the text that suggests that this promise was meant for all people at all times, whoever walks with God. It was, it, it was part of the Jewish covenant, that old covenant. The principle is this. Whenever you come across a promise in the Old Testament that... Um, is not repeated in the New Testament, be very careful about applying that to yourself. Chances are it's meant specifically for the Israelites. Another principle is this. Always read the verse in its original historical context, in the, in, in the cultural context in which it was uh, written. Uh, another case of this is the Acts 16 passage that I mentioned earlier. You need to understand the background of that passage is, is Paul was a prisoner. The, uh, God sent an earthquake to free him from prison. The guard was ready to kill himself because the punishment in Rome for having a prisoner escape under your watch for any reason was that um, uh, you would be tortured to death ordinarily. And so this guy said, I'm going to end it now so I don't have to be tortured. So he's about ready to kill himself. Paul says, don't do that. Save yourself. 
not just physically, but spiritually, and not just for your sake, but for your family's sake. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Now, you need to know that in the ancient Roman world, as in many ancient cultures, as in uh, a lot of cultures yet today, uh, what the, the man, uh, whatever religion the man believed, the whole family automatically believed. And it wasn't because it was forced on them, it's just because the male had that kind of authority in that cultural context. If the husband believes it, the wife believes it, the kids believe it, the servant believes it, everybody follows. Uh, they didn't have the right to, to believe anything different than that. One of the reasons why Christianity was regarded as being anti-family in the ancient world was because, number one, we, we taught uh, people who became Christians that the husband shouldn't have the right to decide whether a child lived or died after it was born. And that was a right that all males had in the Roman government. And we took away that right. As soon as you became a Christian, we said, no, you don't have the right to say that your child would die. A second reason is because uh, Christianity largely grew by women believing in Christ when their husbands didn't. And that was considered undermining the father's authority. So the reputation of Christians in the first century was that we're anti-family. Um, but ordinarily, whatever the man believed, the rest of the family believed. So of course, in that context, in that context, Paul could say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your household. Of course your household, because you're going to believe this, you see. But we're in a different cultural context here. And so we have to be very careful about extrapolating this out and applying it to our own lives on an individual basis as though our kids will not have free will once we uh, become Christians. You, you know that that's not the case. So number one, understand uh, uh, each passage in its cultural context. Number two, and it's related to this one, we need to understand the hyperbole of the Bible. Hyperbole is a, uh, an idiomatic expression an idiom that states something in absolute terms or in exaggerated terms for the sake of emphasis. I told you a trillion times to stop that. That's hyperbole. I probably haven't told you a trillion times. I'm just saying I'm getting tired of telling you. You see, so it's not to be taken literally. Now, the Bible is full of hyperbole. Part of the reason for that is that in, in, in Semitic culture and Semitic languages, uh, they don't have any punctuation marks. They don't have commas. They don't have periods. They don't have exclamation marks. And so the way that you would state something emphatically is by stating it hyperbolically, to state it in an exaggerated form. That's the only way you had of, of saying things with a, an emphasis. It's still like this, actually, in Mediterranean cultures, as some of you know. You go to any Mediterranean culture and uh, go to their, the marketplace and offer a price for, let's say, some boots that some guy made. I'll give you 20 shekels for that or whatever. It's likely he'll say something like, you spit on my mother's grave. Never have I been insulted in all my life. In all the world, never has such a dumb offer been made, you know. <laughs> now, chances are, it's a very emphatic kind of a language, isn't it? Uh, and they're very demonstrative. And, and, you know, Westerners are like, oh, oh, you know. But... <laughs> It's just their way of saying, no, and I mean it. <laughs> Try again, you see. Now, the Bible, is, the, Bible the, 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 the culture of the Bible is, is basically Hebraic, and so it uses a lot of hyperbole. We need to take that in consideration. There's a lot of people who have just sincerely but mistakenly gone astray because they take a hyperbolic expression as being literal. For example, more than a few people have gotten tripped up on this one. Proverbs 22, verse 6 which says, start children off or train children on the way that they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. 
Now, I've met a number of people who took that as being an unconditional promise. If I will just be a godly parent, I have this promise of God that my kids will turn out right, they'll turn out to be believers, they'll be good, moral, upstanding citizens. It'd be nice if the world magically worked like that, but of course, as you know, it doesn't. Uh, there are plenty of good parents who had kids turn out pretty bad, and plenty of bad parents who surprisingly had their kids turn out really good. The world's a lot more complex than any formula can possibly capture. Uh, are we to believe that if we just raise our kids right, they all automatically don't have any free will? You see, no, they, they have that thing called free will. If Adam and Eve could fall, and I'm thinking they probably had the best parenting on the planet, then, then anybody can fall. There's no guarantees here. But see, this is just the Bible's way of saying it's very important to raise kids right. It is very important. But that's a principle, not a magical formula. There's no genie here that's going to guarantee that things are going to turn out that way. What happens is when people take this as an unconditional promise, then when their kids backslide or rebel or, or get into trouble, they either blame themselves, we were bad parents, we are bad parents, which doesn't help anything, or they blame God. God, we were good parents and, and you didn't follow through on your promise. And both of those, you see, both of those in a situation where you're dealing, already dealing with the pain of a kid who's rebelling, now you've got this, this other pain on top of it. But if you understand it in a hyperbole kind of way, you're not led to take it in terms of magic. Here's another one that people have frequently got off on. Matthew chapter 21, verse 22. Jesus says, If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Well, that's wonderful. Now, see, we, we all know, I, I, I guarantee you, there are some people here maybe who are, who are trying not to notice this because you believe this is an unconditional promise, and so you're trying to make the world fit it. But if you're honest with yourself, you know the world doesn't work like this. Uh, I, I, I one time was giving a talk on, on the problem of evil, and I talked about all the variables that affect what comes to pass in this world. And one person got up there and, and said at the end of it, um, you know, you can have all your philosophical variables and all of that, but I just believe the Bible. And I said, well, great. Uh, what does your Bible say? And she goes, my Bible says that I can ask anything and it will be given to me. I said, no, have you found that to be true? And she remarkably said, yes. I said, everything you've ever asked, you've been given. Now, I, I think she's living in self-denial. Uh, I, 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 I think she's, she's sincere, but she's kidding herself. But anyways, I, I just threw out, I said, well, then, then for, for the sake of all of us, would you please right now ask for peace in the Middle East? Um, you know, because apparently, you know, you, you believe it will happen. And then when, when, when that is taken care of, let's move right on to the AIDS in Africa. And you see, I'm thinking if this was a little verse, we could pretty much solve all the world's problems here in the next 15 minutes. But the world's not like that. Uh, but if you understand Semitic culture, it's, it's, you state things in an exaggerated form in order to drive home the importance of it. It's really important that you have faith when you pray and that you go to God with everything. It's really important. But he doesn't mean it to be taken literally. In fact, there's plenty of other verses that qualify this. For example, here's one. If you ask anything according to the Father's will, it will be given to you. Well, Jesus doesn't mention that qualification here. And there's a number of other qualifications that I, I could spell out here. This is so important because there's a whole culture of Christians out there, and some of you have probably come from this background, where they take this literally, not understanding the nature of hyperbole, and they're sincere in this, 
But they really believe that if you're walking with God and having faith, you'll never, ever get sick. You'll never get cancer. You'll never have a disease. You'll never die before the age of 75. Not only that, but since he said you'll receive anything you ask, then, then you'll always be rich if you really have faith. And if you really have faith, you'll be driving a Porsche. If you really have faith, you'll be wearing the, the, the nice suit and the Rolex watch or, or, or what, what have you. And all that now becomes a sign of faith. Which means, if you're poor, it's your own fault. If you're sick, it's your own fault. If you're diseased, it's your own fault. And now people who, I, ha, I could tell you horror stories of people who in those kind of contexts uh, came to financial ruin or, or became sick, got the cancer or what have you. And now there's this, if it's not spoken, there's at least a suspicion that if you just had enough faith, that wouldn't be happening to you. You talk about blaming the victim. This is the paradigmatic case of it. And right when you need community the most, you feel shunned. And right when you need God the most, often you feel shunned. Because you either blame yourself for not having enough faith, or you blame God. Uh, God, I have faith, and yet you're not honoring your promises. It, it's a, the people are sincere, but they're just misunderstanding the nature of, of uh, biblical language. Understand the hyperbole of the Bible. Understand uh, the original context. A third principle is this. Having said all of that, and that needs to happen, there are still promises of God in the Bible, and there are times where we need to expect a miracle. In fact, please turn off your cell phones at this time and pagers, and if your kids start acting up, we have crying rooms in the back. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> for that very reason. Actually, I planted that just to illustrate the importance of that. Yeah. When you're dealing with an ADD uh, preacher, I notice everything. Um, too many things. The third principle is this. I mean, the whole point of the story in, in, in Luke 1 is that Elizabeth and Zechariah didn't have children, and they were too old to have children. But you know what? Late in the midnight hour, God turned it around, and a miracle happened. And we need to be people who believe in the, in the, the miracle-working power of God. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that every barren couple uh, that's been wanting a ch child past the age of 50 should be, should, should be expecting a miracle. Uh, and it doesn't mean that if they don't get it that they lack faith. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that the people of God need to be praying for and moving for as God leads us for God to be doing miracles. Miracles were a central part of Jesus' ministry. They weren't just little you know, trinkets that God handed out to people. Rather, it was a central part of his way of demonstrating that the kingdom of God was present in him. Uh, it, it was where God reigns, all the stuff that is evidence of Satan reigning begins to diminish. And so he demonstrated, not just with word and teaching, but in spirit and in power, the presence of the kingdom. We are called to live and to do and to believe exactly as Jesus did. That's why we're called the body of Christ. We're called to embody the kingdom and demonstrate the kingdom, which means we are called to be people who believe in the power of God. To, to be manifested in the lives of people on every level. Where God reigns, sicknesses will be diminishing. Where God reigns, diseases will be being overcome. Where God reigns, cancer will be being routed. Where God reigns, families will be being brought together. Where God reigns, addictions will be being broken. Where God reigns, people will be being transformed in every area of, of their life. And our job is to believe that and be moving towards that. That's one of the reasons. 
That's one of the reasons why we're doing what we did here this morning, to give, people, to give God a chance, if you will, to be touching people like Jesus did and, 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 and to be manifesting his power in people's lives. And we encourage people in small groups to be believing this and praying for one another and us individually to be believing this and praying for one another. Uh, see, I, I took a big hit last year, and I'm just being honest with you on that. The prayer that I pray now is this. It, it, it's, it, it really comes out of Mark chapter 9, where there's this distraught father who has a demonized son, and he brought him to the disciples. And even though the disciples were able to cast out demons all over the place prior to this, it didn't work with this kid. And so this father is understandably discouraged, much like I was uh, last year in Cambodia. And he, then he brings the boy to Jesus, and Jesus says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And the man, he was honest. See, there's nothing in the Bible that says we're supposed to fake it, or that faith is a sort of psychological gimmick where we, like the lion in the Wizard of Oz, we say, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe, I do believe. You know, th that's just nonsense. And, and this idea that you're supposed to claim a healing when you're not healed, there's nothing in the Bible to support that. You know, to, to, to act like you're healed when you're not. Jesus one time prayed for a guy, and he only got a partial healing. So he said to, to the guy, can you see? And the guy said, well, kind of, but I'm seeing people kind of like tree trunks. Jesus didn't say, well, just kind of go out and start walking and claiming your healing as the guy walks into walls. No, he said, okay, let's keep praying. And he, There's nothing in the Bible that says we're to fake it. We, we're to be honest with God. And this father was honest. He said, Lord, I believe, kind of, sort of, maybe. I believe, but will you help my unbelief? I love that prayer. Uh, and that's where I'm at. It's like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I've taken some hits on this one, and I get discouraged. But you know what? I believe it enough to act on it. That's the true criteria of faith. This is where I'm going to move towards. Faith isn't a guarantee that something's going to come to pass. Uh, there's no promise that everyone we pray for is going to be healed. There's nothing like that. But faith is a move towards action. You envision a future, and you begin to move towards it. And, and uh, God calls me, and God calls us to be a people of that kind of faith, where we're going to move towards this. I've got buzzers about it because of the hits I've taken. I've got buzzers about it because of the carnivals that are out there in the name of healing ministries, and I don't want anything to do with that. But I can't let my own past experience, and I certainly can't let the way others may abuse the gospel, be the, the determiner of my theology or of our theology. We get our theology from the word of God. And the word of God says, Jesus says, I give unto you power to cast out demons. I give unto you power to heal the sick. I give unto you power to make the blind see and the deaf to hear. And our job is to believe that and be moving towards that. Expect a miracle. Be believing in miracles. I want us to, I, I just pray, God, that this would be a place where we don't just talk about it, but we're seeing this happen. And when it happens, as I said earlier, brag on God, call us, get on the website. We want to we be recording these and periodically showing it to, to, the, to the congregation because faith builds faith, which builds more faith. And according to your faith being unto you, the more you have faith, the more you receive, the more you receive, the more you have faith. And to get this uh, snowball going, to see God demonstrate his power in our midst. Believe a miracle. Uh, but having said all that, number four, I close with this. You can, you can interpret the Bible exactly right, and you can have the right kind of faith, and all the faith in the world, in fact. But you still get there, there will be times in life where you take hits. Guaranteed. The world is far more complex than we can possibly comprehend. That's what the book of Job is all about. More often than not, we don't know why. We don't know why this person's healed, this person not, why this person had a tragedy and not this person. And the people who try to figure it out with their little theological magical formulas just screw people up all the more. That's what the book of Job is all about. 
It's so important that in this world, uh, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And this is the fourth principle. There'll be times where there seems to be a contradiction between what we believe and what we experience. That's just the way this war-torn, complex world is. And in those times, I just encourage you to keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. The devil will be working in those times to try to pollute your view of God. You can't really trust God. He's not as nice as you thought he was. He's not as good as you thought he was. He's not, he doesn't really care about you. Uh, you're not one of his favorites. All sorts of other nonsense. It's so crucial that whatever happens to us, our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The world is often ugly, but Jesus is always beautiful. Amen. The world... Amen. The world... Is often bad, but God is always good. And the world can be very cruel, but God is always benevolent. And, and, and the world can also be confusing, but Jesus is always clear. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. Uh, don't let anything define what God thinks about you and who you are before God other than the person of Jesus Christ. Walk, live in the questions. The questions are there. And keep moving forward, but keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, could you stand? I want to close with this prayer. Father, um, I pray, God, that all of us who have wounds would be healed from those wounds, those disappointments, and those discouragements. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. Fan the flame of faith in our life. Lord God, to be, to be pursuing you in your supernatural power, in your miracle-working power. And Lord God, as we go out of this place, I pray that each one of us would just be bold enough to be the radical disciples, the outrageously loving disciples that you've called us to be, to be light in a world of darkness. Uh, Lord God, to, to spread your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, wherever we go, whoever we meet, whatever our circumstances may be. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one more time, amen. amen. God bless you. We love you. Go out and do the kingdom.